Rich yeah. and Rich and uh, Banks and I were in a group called Hair Club for Men. Not the <laughs> Hair Club, not the Hair Club for Men, just Hair Club. And what that is is anytime there is a production of the musical Hair within a 100 mile radius of Los Angeles, we go see it. Whether it's a high school production or a college production or a national tour or anything, uh, so we've seen a couple dozen productions of the musical Hair. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We're getting off the Springsteen train today, uh, and we're going to talk music, magic, podcasting, entertainment. Uh, We have Handsome Jack joining us today, Uh, and just Jack, I I am so thrilled that you said you would join me. in case the audience has not heard of your fabulous career, in case, in case, <laughs> tell the audience a little about yourself, my friend. Uh, I am, as you hinted at in your intro, I'm a magician, and um, uh, I get. I guess that sums it up. Um, uh, I'm a magician, and the, I guess the way you found me is I'm. Uh, have been on several episodes of uh, Penn Gillette's um, Penn Sunday School. And I'd written a book uh, about Penn and Teller and you had bought the book and you heard me on the podcast and thought, uh, well, you know, uh, we can make fun of this guy if I bring him on the podcast. So there I am. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, um, it, but you, I I was reading your official bio and um, you actually got a little skins on the wall. You know, you've you've done pretty well for yourself, haven't you? Um, I have. Well, here's here's the interesting thing. Maybe yeah. it's not interesting. It's mildly interesting to me. Is I never wanted to be a magician. Okay. Uh, it, it was a hobby that took over my life. I had no desire to do it full time or professionally. I was working for, you know, I don't know, twenty years or so. In uh, I did almost any job you could think of in film, TV radio and theater mm-hmm. and magic was a hobby and slowly low over time magic took over my life and i fought it i did not want to do it professionally and full-time and it just it you know like a, like a giant ro- snowball rolling down a hill it just eventually consumed my life and after about 10 years i had to admit i i i, I guess i'm a magician <laughs> but like holy crap how did this happen well yeah and that's the interesting thing is is my fallback plan was not, um, you know, uh, being able to repair cars or accounting. My fallback plan was card tricks. Okay. <laughs> so if, if, you know, this theater career doesn't work out, I always got card tricks. I mean, who, how, you know, strange and improbable is that, you know? Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I, we were talking about before I recorded, I am not even an amateur uh, magician, I, um, you know, but I, I'm, a, I'm fascinated by, first off, the, the discipline for people to, you know, learn 
uh, sleight of hand and, and to do all the, you know, all the work it has to do to do this uh, trick. And, and I, um, I also, you know, cause you, one of the things Bruce says in his uh, Broadway show is he said, you know, he had a magic trick, you know, uh, of, you know, convincing the audience that he was different than he was. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm just fascinated by it that, um, and I, and I think anytime you go into entertainment um, there it's feast or famine sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, how do you, uh, I have a good buddy who is an artist and he, that's all he's ever wanted to be. He said from the moment he could pick up a crayon, that's new. He ever wanted to be. And he never had a fallback as you know, you talked about it. He was just, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to figure out how to make a living on it. Yeah, uh, right. so yeah, well, I always like to start at the beginning. So talk about where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to? Well, uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, re- respond to something you said before. Sure, I please, that. please. I, I love well, tangents. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, there's really what you're saying. You talked about, um, you know, the discipline to do uh, magic. And the thing that I compare magic to most often mm-hmm. uh, is music in that it takes the same kind of uh, discipline and dedication and time that music does. Right. Um, I, t- I taught for a few years, I taught magic at USC for the theater department, actually. It was an elective class. It was open to all majors, not just theater students. And so I got, you know, uh, engineers and students of all kinds. And I would tell them at the beginning of the semester, I, I would say magic is a lot like music. I mean, imagine for those of you that don't play music, and this was a piano course. Mm-hmm. How good do you think you would be at playing the piano at the end of this semester? Right. Well, that's basically how good at magic you're going to be at the end of this semester. Uh, You know, you can learn to plank out a song fairly quickly, but you're not going out on the road at the end of, you know, four months. And magic is kind of of the same way. Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah. And I, you know, and there's so much diversity in Mm -hmm. in the magic. and, And one of the things that, when people, I'll, I'll, they'll ask me like, oh boy, you, you really like the show Fool Us. And I go, yeah, because just the joy and of, it seems that Penn and Teller honestly admire most of the time, the act, yeah. the person. They generally, you know, have good things to say. They, they talk about it. And there's so many reality shows that are all about you know, yeah. cutting people down and making it. And yeah. there seems to be a celebration of what's, you know, can be fun. And, and when they say nice things uh, to the, the performers, most of the time they mean it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a, uh, that's, yeah. I, as we were talking about, you know, I, I listened to Matt Donnelly um, behind yeah. the scenes of that. And he will talk about every once in a while, like, yeah, this did not go as well. The, you know, we cleaned it up for TV because there was a lot of argument about, no, you didn't know how we do it. Yes, I did. And so it's fun. But you did fool them, didn't you? I did indeed fool them. And I, in fact, I was the first American to fool them. They'd done mm-hmm. one season of the show in the UK. Right. And uh, on uh, when they did the first American season, I shot the first day of mm-hmm. shooting and I was the only one who fooled them that day. And so I was the first American to fool them. Although my episode 
ended up airing, you know, halfway through the season because they rearranged. Right. Re- rearranged yeah. Right. yeah. I can just remember though, that the, uh, you, you know, you handing them the prop and they're, you know, they went, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. If you know, so, uh, which you, you had, you know, they had said you, you guys are friends, you knew them. And so I think they get a special joy out of when they see one of their buddies and they know, okay, yeah. this is going to be fun. And they have, they have no idea who's ever, ever is going to be on the show. Right. And, um, and they've had, you know, and because the magic world is small, they know a lot of the people, a lot right. of people on the show, they either have met them briefly or casual or actually good friends with them, but that doesn't mean, you know, they're going to, you know, go easy on you or right. if you know them, you have, have a leg up because many, many of their friends who've been on the show, you know, have, have walked away trophyless. As yes, say. absolutely. Well, very nice. All right. Well, uh, let's go. Uh, you're, uh, you're growing up. What was yeah. it a musical family? Well, well, it was indeed a very non-musical family. Okay. Um, I grew up in a little tiny, tiny little town in Montana many, many, many years ago. I'm an old, old man now. Um, but uh, there was in this tiny little town we grew up with no FM radio, okay. no record stores, no music venues uh, for a 200 mile radius. Um, so seeing live music was something that like never, never happened. Other than like in school, uh, I played, I played the, the baritone horn in, in band in junior high and high school. And it was nice. not very good, not very good, but you know, it was a chance to hear music live when, like I said, there were no opportunities. There was no such thing as garage bands or, you know, kids forming a band in my little town. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I only knew, you know, one kid uh, who was all serious about music and he ended up, you know, he's a professional magician now. Um, oh. And uh, he tours around and every once in a while I'll see, oh, you know, Mitch is in wherever, you know, playing. But so, so there's not, like and and like I said, no no concerts to go see, no FM radio, no nothing. Um, did your did your parents like music? Did they not, like not, did they have not, a... not, not particularly? Okay. Um, and so I grew up. Uh, I grew up. Uh, all I was really exposed to was top forty, and this was in I I, I, I was in high school in the seventies. So I graduated high school in seventy seven. I graduated in 1980. Okay, so, so yeah, yeah, so we're pretty close. And yes, I, I, I talk about that all the time. That, um, you know, the we had an FM station in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where I grew up, but that's the that that was all the kids that were into drugs listened to FM stations, yeah. right? I was yeah. the square little Baptist kid, uh, in listening to Top 40, yeah. um, and you kind of got a little bit of taste of everything back then. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I listening to Casey Kasem oh. do the American Top 40 countdown. That was, that was a huge deal. And so, um, and, and that was really, that was all I knew. It wasn't until I got to college, I started getting exposed to, uh, to other kinds of music. Where'd you go to school? Um, I went to, uh, uh, got my bachelor's at um, Montana State University in Bozeman. Okay. And so occasionally they would have bands come through and there were concerts, but I didn't go to a lot of concerts. Uh, and the, you know, the groups that came to Montana state were not, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the Rolling Stones didn't come through, for example. It was, you know, we would get groups like, um, you know, Quarter Flash came through once, I think. And uh, I'm trying to remember who else. I can't even remember. Uh, maybe well, REO Speedwagon, maybe. When I was um, there in Lake Charles, got a lot of country. Uh, I remember Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge, oh, wow. Willie Nelson a couple of times, saw John Denver. Um, and uh, it was, I did tell though, uh, Harry Chapin showed up oh, and that was kind of cool. The, he, it was a storm and he couldn't, his band couldn't make it. So it was just him and his guitar uh, playing. It felt like three hours. And that was a pretty cool thing. Like I was like, oh, I, I was happy. I kind of got to check that out before his passing. So yeah, uh, that's good. So um, now that you're in college, is your, is your palate expanding? Like, are you discovering? Well, yeah. And, um, and I also, because I, I studied in theater in college. Um, okay. Actually, I, my, my, my major was motion picture production, but I did a lot of theater. I got a minor in theater. And okay. so I did a lot of plays and a lot of musicals. And that's when I started directing as well. Um, and so uh, I got very interested in musical theater. I'm still very interested in musical theater. I've got a couple of friends, um, uh, Stephen Banks, who some people know as Billy the Mime. That'll okay. mean nothing to most of you, but there'll be maybe a few listeners out there who've heard of Billy the Mime. Um, uh, Stephen Banks is a, is a writer. Um, he's written a lot of animation. He was the head writer for SpongeBob Bob SquarePants uh, oh, for a while. Um, that's impressive. He and uh, another friend, a guy named Rich Nathanson, uh, who I know through Penn Jillette, Rich yeah. and Rich and uh, Banks and I were in a group called Hair Club for Men. Not <laughs> the Hair Club, not the Hair Club for Men, just Hair Club, Club for Men. Yes. And what that is, is anytime there is a production of the musical Hair within a 100 mile radius of Los Angeles, we go see it. Whether it's a high school production or a college production or a national tour or anything, uh, so we've seen a couple dozen productions of the musical Hair. Um, I think that is awesome. Yeah, and you know, yeah. I mean, there's Deadheads, right? That go, yeah. and then there's, and then obviously, my audience. There are people that you know travel to see Springsteen when he's touring. Yeah. This is the first I've heard of Hair. Yeah, uh, that that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> and um, and the, the the thing that's kind of interesting about that is it's almost impossible, not almost impossible, I'll say very difficult, to do yeah. a good production of Hair. Okay. It's a really hard show for a number of reasons. One is the music is um, fantastic, um, but difficult, and you need a lot of great singers. Um, capturing that era, you know, the late 60s, the you know Vietnam War era, is very difficult um, just capturing the vibe of that and the design of that uh, like genuine hippie clothes of that era it's easy to just not really get it right um, and um, the choreography everything about it plus the show has no plot it's got no plot it's weirdly episodic and strange and there it's got topical references so of the of the two dozen productions or so that we've seen, um, maybe three of them have been good, you know. Why do you think people keep doing it if it's that difficult to do? Well, I think people don't know the challenge they're in for. Okay. Plus, it's just a great music musical. Mm -hmm. um, although 
I don't know if this is an indicator for, for, for what's coming, but this past year, uh, UCLA was scheduled to do a production. And so, of course, the three of us were very excited about that. And the production was canceled because the student said, we're not doing that racist, sexist play. Oh, wow. Plus, plus and this was amazing, it makes the military look bad. You know, it's very, uh, um, I get not disrespectful to the military. And that was, it is the least sexist, least racist play, yeah. you know, ever written. It is, it is the opposite of racist and sexist. But you have to put it in context and you have to, you know, you have to dive into it and really understand um, uh, what it's about and what it's getting at. And the fact that to say it, it, it puts the, you know, uh, the military in, in a ne- negative light. Well, it, you know, it puts up indiscriminately carpet bombing, you know, yes. civilians <laughs> in a negative light. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, it is a very different time. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, so um, you, you, you talked to me a little bit. We, we exchanged a few emails and back. And so you're, you're, you have three or four bands you're pretty passionate yeah. about. Well, yes, right. I'm, I'm somebody who, if I, if, if I like a band, uh, I, I, I have all of their albums. Okay. And so when you asked if I might be interested in being this podcast, uh, I thought, well, who is the musician I, I could, uh, I could talk about. And I thought, well, it's gotta be somebody where I own every one of their albums. And it's gotta be somebody where I think I have something to say about them because there's many groups where I have a lot of their albums. And so the, the people I narrowed it down to was, well, I said the Roaches, Yes, I love the roaches. And what's funny about that is you said you love their Christmas album. Yes. And I'm not really into Christmas music. I thought I'll take a look at their Christmas album. I went to my roaches area of 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 iTunes. Their Christmas album was actually the only album there's that I don't have. Wow, that's hilarious. So I I bought their Christmas album because I thought I can't have a whole. Yeah. So I bought their Christmas album and I don't like Christmas music, so I'll probably only ever listen to it once. But I've got I've got not only all the Roaches albums, I've got all the various combinations because the three sisters, you know, recorded yeah. albums in various combinations, like these two sisters or those two sisters or, or whatever. But I love the Roaches. Um, little story about the Roaches. I didn't pick the Roaches. We're not going to be talking about the Roaches, okay. but I want to tell a little story about the Roaches. Please do. Uh, back in, this would have been in the, in the late 70s, I'm pretty sure, like 78 or so. I don't know when for sure. Yeah. In an era when a lot of the music on Saturday Night Live was not great. Um, I mean, they had some fantastic musicians, but every once in a while they'd have a lot, you know, a lot of clunkers. Yeah. And I wasn't really into like punk or anything. I never really did get into punk. I grew to appreciate it somewhat, okay. um, but I never really got into punk. I'm just, you know, it was all those years in, you know, Montana growing up yeah. listening, listening to sticks. And yes. Meatloaf, yes. You know, that, Kansas. Uh, dust in the wind yes yes toto that you know and billy joel right you know punk was never going to sink its claws into me so uh i'm pretty sure it was buck henry the host and i love buck henry and said ladies and gentlemen the roaches i thought the roaches oh god this is gonna be a punk band oh yes the roaches and then it cuts to these three women and one of them is wearing like um you know, thrift store, you know, clothes. Another's wearing like a, you know, I think a football jersey. Another one's wearing like an army jacket. And I thought, oh yeah. my God, uh, isn't be awful. And then they broke into their acapella version 
of the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? And they won me over instantly. And I've been a huge fan ever since. Yeah. You know. See, what actually, when I talk about the Christmas album, the two songs that I love the most, and they're all good, but I love their Hallelujah Chorus. And they're uh, uh, a son is given right the from yeah. pandas was you know both of those songs, and those will be on our rotation during the holiday. Yeah, great harmony, uh, yeah. you know. And I've just I've never taken the time to go explore some other albums, so I should because their you know, harmony tell, is amazing. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. One thing to to look up. And for those of you who don't know the Roaches, it's not Roach as in the insect. It's their last name, and it's spelled R O C H E. Yes, uh, the Roaches. So that's why. But I heard Roaches, and of course thought. Yeah, the word. sure. So they're um, they most of the albums were the three of them. Uh, it's Maggie and Terry and Suzzy Roach. Uh, but the first album they put out was was two of the sisters, and I'm looking up the album right now. It'll take me a second to pull it up okay. to get the name of the album. Here we go. The first one they put out was just uh, Maggie and Terry, two of the sisters. And the album is called Seductive Reasoning. It was 1975. And there's a song on there called West Virginia. Okay. So, you know, track down West Virginia. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Okay. West Virginia from the album Seductive Reasoning by Maggie and Terry, uh, okay. Maggie and Terry Roach. Um, and this song reminds me a little bit of um, early uh, Ricky Lee Jones, actually. It's the kind of song Ricky Lee Jones uh, would have written and recorded, I think. Okay. Right. But but I didn't I didn't pick the Roaches. Another band I considered was Ten Thousand Maniacs because I I love Ten Thousand Maniacs, particularly the Natalie Merchant years. And interestingly enough, I love Natalie Merchant. I love every album she recorded with Ten Thousand Maniacs. I don't like any of her solo albums. Why do you think that is? Well, because they're all overly sincere. Okay. Uh, they're just very very sincere. And they all kind of sound the same to me. Whereas there's a real sort of joy to a lot of the 10,000 Maniacs. No, even if the subject was like child abuse, it was a song you wanted to get up and dance to. Right. You know? And there's there's none of that in her solo work. I mean, she she has recorded some some uh, songs I like on her solo work, um, but we didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't pick 10,000 Maniacs. I wanted okay. desperately to talk about Tom Waits. Yes. Um, who is, oh my God, there was like a three-year period where all I listened to was Tom Waits. Wow. Um, I told a friend of mine that once. I said, all I've been listening to for like the last three years is uh, Tom Waits. He said, whoa, you should eat a salad. <laughs> um, and because as much as I love that Tom Waits, uh, I, I didn't know that I could, could, could talk about him as uh, deeply and as intelligently as I would have liked. Okay. I just, I will just say Tom Waits is the greatest. And if you're not, uh, if you're not that familiar with him, I'd say do a deep dive. My advice is start with like his first six albums mm -hmm. uh, because he really grows and involves as an artist. And um, you'll either really, really like the weird areas that he gets into later in his career, or he'll leave you behind. And that's okay. You don't have to like everything someone does. Right. Because a lot of his later music, um, a lot of his later music is not for me. As much okay. as I want to love it, it he's he's into territories that I just can't follow because he's kind of 
you know, a musical genius and right. doing his own amazing singular thing. Mm-hmm. But I thought the person I could talk to who was the first musician that I really got obsessed with was Elton John. Okay. Um, because I think Elton John uh, not only was my first obsession, uh, there's a lot, uh, you know, a lot to say about Elton John and, and a lot of interesting things when you examine his career and his music, I think. So, so. I, I'm often asked, you know, on these little Twitter or Facebook, someone like, oh, what was your first album you bought with your own money? And mine was an Elton John Greatest Hits CD. Oh. I mean, no, A-Track, oh. right? The A-Track. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um Growing up in the 70s that, you know, he was you you just heard him on the radio all the time. And I, you know, I in, in all the pop hits and just everything amazing about him. So when did you first hear him and what about his music spoke to you? Um, I'm not sure when I first heard him or even what songs I first heard, but this would have been in the, you know, early seventies. Right. uh, When he was, he did, he has an amazing six year run. I'm going to pull up my iTunes so I can get, uh, get these statistics correct. But from 1970 Mm -hmm. to 1976, depending on how you count, it's depending on whether you count the live albums because he recorded two live albums. Yeah. And he also released three double albums. And it depends on if you count a double album as, you know, one record or two. But depending on your ca- how you count, from 1970 to 1976, he recorded 10 or 14 albums of music and every one of them is a masterpiece. Like I say, two yeah. of them are live albums, so you might not count those. But... From 1970 to 1976, he recorded his uh, his, el- his album called Elton John, which right. the first cut on Elton John is Your Song, yes. which was, you know, that monster, Your Song. Then he did Tumbleweed Connection, then Madman Across the Water, uh, then a live album, then Honky Chateau, then Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, uh, which is all just great pop, pop tunes. Then the, you know, amazing double album, Goodbye Yellowbrick Road, then Caribou, then Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboys, then Rock of the Westies, and then Blue Moves, another double album. All of that from 70 to 76, and every one of them is fantastic. And then his next album, two years later in 1978, was a single man. And from then on, since 1978, he has alternated between albums that have mm, two or three songs that are okay to, al- to albums that are terrible. It's like, yeah. ah, there's a couple of songs on this one I like. Oh, this album's terrible. Oh, I like two songs on this album. This one's terrible. He's been writing the same perfume commercial jingle over and over and over again for 30 years now. And after that burst of creativity in the 70s, I find both those things mind-boggling. How could he write so many, so much amazing, mind-blowing, hard-hitting rock music yeah. for six years? And how could he have sort of lost it so so completely ever since then? You know, and to to throw it back to Tom Waits, right? Mm-hmm. He as an artist kept growing and kept stretching. And mm-hmm. you said you may not even like some of the things he's doing, but you recognize 
he's trying to grow as an artist and try to, you know, expand new songs. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. I do think that's a, that is a hell of a run. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I remember hearing him on the radio all the time, uh, just in this such enjoyable music, um, everything from, you know, your song to mm-hmm. poppy crocodile rock, yeah. you know, I, I can remember hearing that on the radio yeah. when I was, you know, with my parents. So yeah, yeah. just everything. I think that crocodile rock is from his 1973 album. Don't shoot my own the piano yeah. player. And I think that is probably the first music of his I heard for the songs from that album, which is yeah. Daniel which is Daniel's a wonderful song, a song called Teacher, I Need You, which is about having a crush on your teacher. Um, uh, Crocodile Rock's on there. Yeah, this great, you know, shit-kicking song called Text and Love Song. Um, uh, Elderberry Elderberry Wine. So I think that's probably the first album. And probably Daniel um, and Crocodile Rock uh, were the first two. And then soon after that, uh, obviously, I would have heard your song because it yeah. was everywhere on on the radio. And then, um, then he had a, a song um, on Elton John that album. What your songs on? It, it called this song is an amazing song. It's called the Greatest Discovery, and it's it's from the the point of view of a of a young young child, probably probably someone like six or eight years old, and his parents have just, you know, just given birth to a, a new baby. So it's about this weird, mysterious thing about another human being coming, uh, you know, coming in, in, into the world. And it's just, and, and this is going to lead us to talking about Bernie Taupin, because that's one of the amazing things about, yeah. about Elton John is the sort of amazing thing about Elton John's story is Elton John you know, he had a he had a music career. He was in a band called Bluesology, um, uh, but he quit Bluesology and he wanted wanted to you know continue and have a, have a career. And there was a a music, uh, I, I guess it was a record company. Uh, I should know these details. I don't. It's a record company, and they put out an ad in one of the trade papers saying you know talent wanted. So he sent he wanted to be uh, you know a a, a singer songwriter. So he sent in, you know, answered their ad and went in and said, I'm, you know, I'm a singer. And they're like, they didn't really, you know, think of much of him, think much of him as a singer. He goes, well, I also write songs too. They go, well, you know, like what, what kind of stuff do you write? And he goes, well, I, I don't really write lyrics actually. Mm-hmm. And so they said, well, here's a guy. And I've heard the story two different ways. Then they just picked up a random envelope and they handed him an envelope, said, here's a guy who writes lyrics. You know, why don't you why don't you get in touch with him? I've heard it was just he grabbed it from the pile and handed it to him. I've also heard that he said, "Well, here is somebody who has uh, sent us a bunch of lyrics. Why don't you see, you see if you can do something uh, with this?" Doesn't really matter. He was an eighteen. You know, Bernie Taupin was eighteen years old. So Elton took this envelope that had a bunch of samples of lyrics and took it home and set it to music. And they met and they just hit it off. They liked each other. They, they became good friends. Um, uh, Bernie Taupin moved in. Elton was living with his mother, and Bernie Taupin lived, moved in with them, lived with Elton and his mother, and they started writing songs. 
And I think everybody knows, even Bernie Toppin knows, that if it hadn't been for, for Ber- Elton John, none of us would know the name Bernie Toppin. Right. But I also think if it wasn't for Bernie Toppin, we probably wouldn't know the name Elton John. Now, Elton probably would have had a career as a musician. He might have even had you know some hits. But I don't think he would have hit and exploded if, if he hadn't hooked up with Bernie Toppin. I don't think it, something about Bernie and Bernie's lyrics inspired him in a way to write these songs that just exploded that I think quite possibly would not have happened with any other writer. Um, It's an amazing story that the two of them found each other just the same way. It's an amazing story that Penn and Teller found each other. Yes. This big guy who is an amazing talker, this guy who can write and talk. I, I think Penn is really underrated for his ability uh, to speak both spontaneously and great stuff he's written. And this guy who performs silently and does amazing magic and they found each other and, you know, and they work together perfectly. It's the same sort of thing that they found each other, you know, and this way that, you know, Bernie and Elton found each other. I find that sort of miraculous. So often when Bruce talks about the E Street Band, mm-hmm. he says one plus one equals three. And that, that, and, and I think that's true. I remember, I can't remember what show it was. It was some variety show and they were all about, it was whoever was the host was having creative people on there, like behind the scenes. And I remember Bernie Taupin speaking the lyrics mm-hmm. of, you know, because, you know, he doesn't perform yeah. and, and it is the, the magic of that, how do you get there? The, to, the sum together is greater than the parts. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree. I, you know, so have you seen Elton perform live? I, I actually have. I, I, um, one of the first, once I moved to LA in yeah. uh, the late 80s, um, one of the first concerts I went to was I saw Elton John at, I believe it was the Universal Amphitheater. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, of course it was great. And then, oh, a decade later, I saw it, uh, when Elton John and Billy Joel went on tour together. And I loved Billy Joel a lot in, uh, in high school as well. Yeah, and I did too. I still love, love Billy Joel. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've seen him, I've seen him live, live twice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, that, yeah. Cause I was going to say Billy Joel was one of the surprises of, um, when he was on Saturday Live and did only the good die young, I remember going, wow, who's this guy? And then when he did, you're only a woman. I'm like, oh, okay. It's that guy on the radio. So yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, super guy. Well, I didn't, uh, I think, I think I didn't discover Billy Joel until, you know, the, the stranger came out. Right. Uh, Cause we had a couple albums before that. Um, but the stranger came out, which was a monster album of the wheel. We all in the, in the late seventies. Yes, we all listened to that entire album over and over and over again. And then I bought you know all of Billy Joel's albums. Um, but yeah. I want to get back to this um, the greatest discovery that this this song that just sort of kind of blew my mind. Sure, yeah, talk to me. Sort of, it told this story from a point of view in a way that was kind of new to me at the time. And I'm just going to read a few of the lyrics here, and this may not. And the thing about lyrics, you know, Stephen Sondheim, you know, who's uh, an amazing musical theater uh, writer 
uh, music writer and, and lyricist, says the thing, the difference between lyrics and poems is that there's, well, there's several differences, but one of the differences, lyrics are incomplete by themselves. They need the music to, to complete them. And so sometimes great lyrics, if you just read the lyrics, they kind of fall flat. And, uh, and that may happen here. We'll see. Okay. But, um, but I'll, I'll read some. Uh, peering out of tiny eyes, the grubby hands that grip the rail, wipe the window clean of frost as the morning air lays on the latch. Uh, a whistle awakens someone there next door to the nursery just down the hall. A strange new sound you never heard before. A strange new sound that makes boys explore. Uh, and then several more stanzas. And then it goes, um, um, and all you ever learned from them until you were much older did not compare with when they said, this is your brand new brother. This is your brand new brother. And with the sort of, you know, wonderful lyric music lifting this, it's just a, just a great song from that, uh, from that first Elton John album. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that song. And now that I'm going to have to go check it out because I love the idea that um, the, the wonder of, of that finding, you know, your, your sibling and everything. Mm -hmm. So, oh, that's, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, so um, as, as he continues and growing with them, you, as you said, you're, you, you're not as a big a fan now as you did. What did you think of the movie that they kind of based on his music? Oh, you know what? Uh, I didn't love the movie. It was uh, the same director, uh, the same director who did the um, Freddie Mercury the, right. the Queen movie. What was that one called? Was that called? We. What was that movie called? Do you remember the one about Queen? Uh, I'm going to draw a block. In, we were Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. Of, course, of course, it was called yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. What, what else are they going to call that movie? Yes. Um, I thought I thought that was a better movie. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated um, uh, I appreciated the, the a lot of the things that things they did with it, the way they used the music, the way they took some of the, some of the songs. And sort of them injected them uh, into his uh, his early life, even though they weren't written till decades later. And uh, right. I, thought, I thought the lead actor, you know, did a great job. But yeah. um, the, the 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 movie didn't really really grab me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's worth seeing. Yeah. If you see the movie, I don't think it will be a waste of your time. Yeah. But um, you know, biopics are, are are very difficult and often problematic. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I you know there are I think there's a select few that that really work, but a lot of them are, um, you know, I mean they're they're certainly fun. You can go and and I do think it if you are if you had forgotten how much music Elton had made, yeah. you go to that and you go, Oh yeah, that one. Oh yeah, that one. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. that one, you know, that part of it. Sing. And, and they did a great job with the music in the movie. Yeah. I, I will say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was, uh, it made me think there was a, in the, in the late seventies, uh, mid, 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 probably the mid seventies, although I might not have seen it till, till a little later, there was a documentary 
on, uh, it was was made for British television. And somehow I ended up seeing it on TV in the US. I don't know how, especially with only getting, you know, three channels. Yes. uh, I don't know how it would have been that this this aired and I thought, but it was a documentary called uh, Elton John and Bernie Toppin say goodbye, Norma Jean and other things. Okay. And it had this narration thing. And I used to do this occasionally. I would record programs because this is way before VHS and, you know, recording, recording shows and watching them again. But I would record them on a cassette player, just the audio and listen to it again. So I recorded this documentary about Elton John and Bernie Taupin, and it had this narration in it that I actually, without trying to, I memorized. And I would like to do some of it for you now. I because, uh, Here we have Jack doing a dramatic reading from yes, exactly. the BBC documentary, please. With, 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 a, with a very bad hint at a British accent because that's, you know, that's the way the, uh, the, the, the narrator did it. And um, I don't know if this is great writing or uh, terrible writing because at the time I thought, oh my God, this is incredible writing. And I still kind of love it, even though it's, uh, uh, you know, perhaps not quite as, uh, you know, uh, genius as I think it. I'm not gonna do the whole thing. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do portions of it, but, but here we go. Uh, Elton John plays cricket as he plays the piano, dressed to kill and as if his life depended upon it, for the greatest sin in his, in his book is to be boring. At 26, he walks confidently on five-inch heels where lesser angels fear to tread, sporting coats, hair, and spectacles of many colors, sometimes as bright and unyielding as the diamonds he wears on his fingers, sometimes plunged into self-critical gloom. Four years, six million records, and then they stopped counting. Four years of moving relentlessly across the never-never land of sudden wealth, instant fame on a train that never stops except to throw people off. As much an enigma to himself as to his friends, now possessing no inhibitions, now totally inhibited. Extravagant and generous, seeking fame one moment, determined to reject it the next. Sometimes the victim of his own extraordinary talents, gifted, lonely, gifted even in his loneliness, able to cull from it another facet of his superlative musical perception, a one-off, a true original, a copper-bottom coast-to-coast sellout, the legend he always wanted to become. I love that. That is so good. That is amazing. (laughs) Uh, You know, um, a few, a couple of years ago, I'm a I do another podcast with my buddy. Um, we, we talk about the British show, Doctor Who. And uh-huh. uh, to celebrate, we talked about, you know, Doctor Who is all about time travel. And we each picked our five shows we would use if we had a time machine to go back. Uh-huh. And that, that first show that the movie talks about him being in Los Angeles at the Troubadour, I would, yeah. and that was oh. one of my pick. I would have loved because oh. the, all those Beach Boys there and the idea of I just think that would have been amazing yeah. to see. Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in 1970, Elton's record company uh, flew Elton over to America to do some dates. And Elton was very skeptical about it because nobody knew who he was in America. Um, and so they booked him, I think, six nights at the Troubadour which is this legendary club, uh, you know, in Los Angeles. 
and he didn't, he wasn't sure about this, but it was one of those things where basically that one night made his career. He became a star in America overnight uh, because there were several music critics there and they wrote about him, particularly uh, one music crit critic in the, uh, the LA Times, but all the musicians in LA came and saw Elton and it was this legendary performance and he just blew the roof off of the place. And that is, if I could go back and see one musical performance in time, it, I would probably pick one of those troubadour performances in 1970 uh, as well. Yeah. yeah, I, I, you know, I, you've, I've read about that. They talked about it in the movie and then they, there was a follow-up, you know, like a newspaper article that, you know, describing and the amount of, you know, a, a couple of the Beach Boys were there, a bunch of other people from the California music scene uh, and just blown away. And I think that's, that would have been cool to see. That would have been yeah. very cool to see. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to say for anybody, you know, who doesn't know Elton that well, I just want to go, go back and sort of, you know, highlight those first, you know, those albums in the first six years I was talking about. Absolutely. Um, after Elton John, he did an album called Tumbleweed Connection, which is all, uh, every song is set in the American West. Um, Bernie Toppin, you know, country kid from, from England, and Elton John, who grew in a, you know, suburb of London, uh, you know, wrote these you know, 10 or 12 songs, all set, you know, about gunslingers in the American West and, and, and farmers. And it's just like, and it's amazing. And they really capture, uh, really capture that vibe. There weren't uh, any real big hits on that, uh, on that album, but there's some, some great songs. And then the next one was Mad Men Across the Water. Uh, amazing songs on that one, including Tiny Dancer, you know, one of his most popular, you know, songs. Uh, if anyone see, saw the movie uh, Almost Famous, they used that song to great effect. Almost, in, uh, I mean, just iconic famous. film yeah. scene of use of music. If yeah. if you're going to talk about musical scenes, I, I think that that makes most people, it's certainly in the discussion for top 10. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tiny Dancer, great, great song. Um, uh, uh, Mad Men Across the Water title song is just great, great. Like one of the great, it's, it's like dramatic, like a movie. That that song sounds like a, a, a dark, you know, 70s thriller movie to me. Um, those are the two songs that are, are, are uh, best known from, but it's got other great songs like Leave On is, is terrific. Uh, Indian Sunset, another one that could have been on the, um, uh, the Tumbleweed Connection, which is all all from the point of view of a, of a Native American. Um, and it's great. Um, I, I imagine if they were to rec record it now, it might be considered uh, problematic and cultural appropriation. But I think it's a very sympathetic, uh, you know, right. wonderful, wonderful song. Um, then after Mad Men Across the Water, uh, Honky Chateau had um, one of his best songs ever called Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's was not a hit. I don't believe it was released as a single, but it's one of his great, great, great pop songs. Just yes, it is. I agree. Really, if you don't know Mona Lisa's Mad Hatter's, you should track it down. But Rocket Man, Rocket Man is on this album, which is, you know, uh, uh, you know, great song. Uh, had, you know, some funny, funny lyrics. It's about, it's, you know, it's about an astronaut. And he says, it's just my job five days a week. Because apparently in space, you can take take weekends off. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
another great song is I think I'm going to kill myself, which is, you know, about a teenager, you know, uh, what, you know, an overly dramatic teenager, like threatening suicide. It's not, it's not a deep, dark song about suicide. It's about a, you know, melodramatic teenager. And, and who hasn't had those thoughts about, oh, you know, when I'm gone, you know, you'll all be sad then. Yes, and, absolutely. And I wish you appreciated me now. It's from, from that point of view. Uh, really fun song uh, from uh, Honky Chateau. Then the album we talked about, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, which had, you know, Daniel and, um, you know, uh, uh, Crocodile Rock. Um, which is a great title for an album. You know, there's yeah. so much tongue in cheek there. That, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and a great, a great, uh, the, the uh, photo on the album cover is fantastic. Yes. It's, uh, it's two kids going into a movie theater and the, the movie on the marquee of the movie theater is Don't Shoot Me, I'm, I'm Only the Piano Player, which is great. Yeah. But then, then we come to Elton's masterpiece. Uh, if, if, if we could only save one of Elton John's albums, I, I think it would have to be Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is a double album. And uh, I wouldn't say every single song on, on, on this double album is, is fantastic, but I would say 75% of them are, are yeah. masterpieces. Um, uh, it, it, it starts off with, with Funeral for a Friend, an amazing, amazing, very dramatic uh, uh, instrumental that goes into Love Lies Bleeding. Uh, you know, great, uh, great song about, you know, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, lamenting a, a love affair that didn't work out. Candle in the Wind, uh, which was about Marilyn Monroe that then got rewritten to be about um, Princess Di- Diana. Uh, amazing sort of sympathetic view of, of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Elbrick Road. Um, some lesser known songs that are just great. This song has no title. Gray Seal, um, a great song called I've Seen That Movie Too. Oh, The Ballad of Danny Bailey, which is about you know a gangster from the 30s, sort of a, a Bonnie and Clyde type, type album about Danny Bailey, which is yeah. just wonderful and over the top and dramatic and great uh dirty little girl um your sister can't twist but she can rock and roll saturday night's all right for fighting great rocker roy rogers another western theme um candle in the wind oh that's that's no this is from uh we already talked about yeah Uh, anyway that's 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 his his his, his masterpiece is is uh, yeah. uh caribou there's a couple songs on caribou i'd like to talk about sure uh, one is uh the song is what is he oh don't let the sun go down on me yeah great song great dramatic very dramatic you know wonderful don't let the sun go down on me but he has a song called ticking and ticking is again it's like a movie it's about a movie um about um is it uh i've got it's been so long since i've listened to it i i forget the story a little bit but it but it but it's about um is it is it about a sniper uh what is the crime this person it's it's about a sniper or is not a serial killer or something but it's about uh yeah uh, i think it's about somebody who snaps and and like yeah. murders his family or something isn't that what is he yes. he murders his family and it's about right. what happened in his brain, what happened to it in his brain that made him, you know, make him, you know, you know go insane and and uh, and go on this yeah. rampage and what happens to him. Yeah. 
it's a it, it wasn't wasn't a hit single but it's an amazing song that you should listen to and then captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy cowboy which is which is great for a number of reasons uh one it's got some great songs that that you know most of you are probably familiar with um uh, uh someone saved my life tonight uh is probably the biggest song song on there but it's it's a it's a concept album um wasn't the first concept album but it was one of one of the early early ones yeah and it's all about it's the story of elton john and bernie Taupin's career up to that point and it's all about all their years meeting up writing songs struggling wanting to be in show business uh and um so it's this great sort of autobiographical song and you don't have to know that to appreciate it but because it is <clears throat> excuse me but because it's very personal and autobiographical, all the songs, you know, really, really resonate in a, in a, in a great way. Um, uh, and, and plus the, the album is great. And it also came with this uh, a souvenir booklet, uh, which is great, which had a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, reproductions, mementos and a, and a sort of a, a, a comic book about their career up to that point. Uh, it, you know, it was great having, you know, that, that booklet to page through as you're listening to those songs. Uh, then Rock of the Westies, which had some of his, you know, sort of more unusual songs. But um, what would we know from that? Um, Island Girl was a, was a minor hit. Oh, yeah. another great song. Another great, again, Western themed because Bernie Taupin yeah. was a West. I feel like a bullet in the gun of Robert Ford. Mm. And Robert Ford was the man was the man who shot Jesse James in the back. Right. And it was just song about what it would be like to be, you know, the you know, you make me feel like a bullet in the gun of Robert Ford. Really, really, you know, great song of uh, you know, of guilt. And then uh, then the last last of that great run from 7076 is Blue Moves, which is a double album. It has some of his some of his most beautiful music on there. Uh, it's got a got some instrumentals on there. Uh, an instrumental called Your Starter 4, another instrumental called The Theme from a Non-Existent TV Show, but um, a song called Tonight, which is a beautiful song, sort of lamenting a, a relationship that's not really working. Um, really beautiful song. Um, another great song called Chameleon. Uh, um, oh, and Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word, again, you know, about a relationship that's, yeah. that's not really it's heartbreaking well. you know heartbreaking yeah yeah Gord, gorgeous song um yeah um so uh, those are you know just wanted to cover those no hey, no those, those albums from the from that that amazing explosive period you you, you should yeah. you should explore them do you um when he when he's I, I believe he's touring again. Are you going to try to go see him again? I probably will. Um, yeah. You know, he was, I was going to, when he announced the tour, uh, uh, I was going to try and um, try and get to it. And then COVID hit and it got interrupted. And, yeah. and now, you know, I don't know when or well, uh, yeah. when, or when he'll be playing. And, but I, I will probably try to, cause uh, you know. Yeah. So, I did want to talk a little bit. Um, how 
how have you done this past two years? I mean, when you make a living performing in front of people and you can't perform in people, how has this been this past crazy two years? Well, the thing that has kept me sane and the key thing that is, um, you know, enabled me to pay rent a, a little bit was, uh, was what, what I did is I um, focused on writing magic books. Okay. Um, I, I have written, you know, before the pandemic, I had written about maybe six magic books uh, okay. already and had just when, just when the pandemic started, I had been hired to write a magic book for somebody. Okay. And so I went into, I went into lockdown. Um, well, I'll tell you the story. I was, I told you I'd been teaching at USC. I was right. teaching for the, the theater department at USC. And in January of 2020, this, this timeline is important. In January of 2020, I quit my teaching job at USC in order to focus on performing on cruise ships. <laughs> yes. Guess what happened to that bright idea? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh. So I was on a cruise ship, was working a cruise ship uh, the week of March 6th through March 11th. And that was the week where everything changed, where right. from day to day we were like, oh, oh, this is a thing. Oh, yeah. this is serious. Oh, this is huge. Oh, this is, oh, oh, this is real. This is, this is going to be a problem for a couple of months. Yeah. And so I, I got off the cruise ship on March 11th. And uh, and went home and, and said to myself, I'm going to have to quarantine for a couple of weeks because I was on a cruise ship. Yeah. And I, I thought I'll quarantine for two weeks. Well, that, those two weeks turned into 18 months. And I basically for 18 months or a, a year anyway, did not leave my apartment. You know, yeah. I stared at, you know, blank walls for, for a year. But what kept me sane was I, I, I was writing magic books um, and I've written or, or worked on in various capacities uh, like uh, at least, uh, you know, more than a dozen books, maybe, maybe as many as 20 books. Okay. I didn't write them all. Some, some I co-wrote, some I consulted on, some I just did some heavy, heavy, heavy editing on. Uh, but I, you know, wrote, you know, wrote or co-wrote probably six books. Okay. And I'm you know, working on others. So that, that's what I've been doing. And so I don't know how much performing I'll be doing because, you know, I was going to start like, um, really getting back into it heavy start this past January yeah. and then the Omicron variant hit. Right. And, and then I thought, Oh, and so I don't know when the next variant is going to hit. And so who knows? I don't know what, I don't know what's going on with my performing career. You know? Yeah. We'll um, it's, it's ironic. I got a text today from um, some real good friends of my wife and I and saying, let's schedule dinner really quick before another cool. wave hits yeah. <laughs> right yeah. so uh yeah a similar story i um i had started a new job february 10th and i remember at the very end of february first of march um one of uh, i run a contact center and so one of my agents came to me and sat down and said jesse i'm really worried about this you know covid I'm like, oh, you know, they always, you, we yeah. always hear things are going to be bad and it's not, yeah. it's going to be fine. Yeah, how, and, how, how much did SARS change our lives? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, we spent two months, you know, isolated, you know, working remotely uh, and we do roadside assistance. 
And if everyone's locked down, there's no one needing toes. No one's breaking down. Uh, And it was, you know, it was crazy. It was just really crazy. Uh, That's amazing. Now, but you did mention you do have a gig coming up, right? I'm I'm performing at the Magic Castle next week. Very good. Uh, Magic Castle is 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 this great, great venue in Los Angeles. It's been around for, you know, uh, I guess... 59 years now, I believe. Um, great, great, great magic venue, sort of a legendary, uh, you know, place to perform magic and see magic. And so yeah. uh, I've been performing there for whatever, 20, 25 years. So I'll be performing at the castle. I'm still a little skittish about, you know, yeah. live shows and stuff, but but I'll be, uh, you know, I won't be bringing people up on stage and, right. you know, I'll be playing it safe, uh, you know, on, on, on that level anyway. Good. Um, all right. So if someone wants to learn more about you to find your books, what's the best way to do this? Well, I would guess uh, I, don't, I don't know. I've got a website, but there's not much information on the website because I've sort of let it uh, <laughs> languish. Yes. Uh, I've got a website. If you're, if you're curious, it's, it's handsomejack.com. Um, if you, if you, if anybody has any questions or, you know, has any reason to, they, they want to contact me. My email is jack at handsomejack.com. Okay. Very easy. Or you go to handsomejack.com and just click on the email me. Jack okay. at handsomejack.com. Good. So. Well, I, I love this. I now want to uh, have you back on and we can talk roaches or Joe Jackson. That was yeah. another one of yours. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I went through well, a, I, I went through a spell where I was loving Joe Jackson. There was a oh, lot I, of things. I've, I've seen Joe Jackson live three times. He's the only person I've seen live live in concert three times. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I do want to talk about maybe, I don't know whether to save this for, for uh, another podcast or go into it now. Yeah. I want to talk about the one group that I really wanted to talk about. And the reason why I didn't pick them, even though I'm yeah. kind of obsessed, is because they only ever re- released one album. Okay. And who is this? And that's the Shags. The Shags, okay. Yeah. I have not heard of them. Okay, well then we're gonna we're, then I'm gonna I'm gonna learn you. I'm gonna okay. learn you a little bit about the Shags because I'm obsessed with the Shags. Okay. The Shags is it's such an amazing story. Come with me, come with me now, won't you, to a place yes. called the late 1960s in New Hampshire, USA. There was a family in uh, in New Hampshire in the 1960s, uh, the Wigan family. Uh, Austin and Annie Wigan and uh, and their three daughters, although they had some some other kids as well. I think another daughter and and a, and a son, but it's it's really about the the three daughters. Austin Wigan, a small working class family in a small boring little town. Um, and if you're from this town, I I apologize. Uh, Fremont Fremont New Hampshire, but it's described as sort of a you know uh, a sleepy little town. Austin's mother before she died had made some predictions she was into like you know fortune telling and stuff and she said austin was going to marry a woman with strawberry blonde hair and she was going to have two sons that the mother wouldn't live to see and that also his he would have three daughters who would form a rock and roll band so austin did end up marrying a woman with strawberry blonde hair and after his mother died his wife did give birth to uh, two sons. And so when his three girls were in high school, he pulled them out of school 
and bought them musical instruments and said, you're gonna be, you're gonna form a rock and roll band. Now these girls had no interest in music and no musical aptitude whatsoever, but he bought them instruments and he's, and he just forced them to play the instruments over and over and over again. There might've been some music lessons maybe, but it would have been, you know, not much and not extensive. It was just, you know, play your instruments over and over and over and write songs. And so, like I said, they didn't, you know, they liked the radio. They liked to listen to, you know, the Beatles and Herman's Hermits on the radio and maybe the Beach Boys, but they yeah. had no, no real aptitude. But their father would, you know, make them rehearse uh, and do calisthenics because you got to be in shape if you're, uh, you're going to be in showbiz. And they just played their instruments over and over and over again. And they wrote their own songs. And the music they wrote... Well, I'll get to that. I'll get to okay. that because that's, that's later in the story. And so after, I think, a year or two, uh, after a year or two, he got them a gig playing, I believe it was like every Friday or every Saturday night at the local like VH, VH, VHS, no, VFW. VFW, the, yes. VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars, like the, you know, the local, you know, uh, lodge in town. Right. playing for what they would would have called sock hops in those days for the local teenagers and so they would play their songs and the you know the the kids because there's not much else to do uh, on a weekend in that town and the kids would show show up and dance and after you know at one point he said okay you're ready we're going to record so they went to a little town a little not a little town they went to a place outside of boston and they were they were about 50 miles from boston and these girls had never been to Boston, 50 miles. They grew up 50 miles from, and had never been to Boston, which, which told you kind of what, how insular their lives were because it was a very, they weren't really allowed to date. They weren't allowed to socialize. They weren't very popular. Uh, you know, their dad was very, very controlling and, and protective. But he went to a recording studio and the engineers of the studio you know, heard him play and suggested maybe they're not ready to play. Okay. And the father said, Nope, I want to get them while they're hot. And so he insisted that they record and they did. They recorded all day and recorded about a dozen songs and they pressed 1000 albums. And very soon after that, uh, somebody like the recording engineer, somebody disappeared with 900 of the thousand albums that, that, that were pressed. 900. Yeah. And so nothing really happened with the album, not surprisingly. Uh, but they still kept, uh, uh, you know, playing on the weekends for, for another, you know, three or four or five years. And then their father had a heart attack and died in like 1975. And then that was, that was the last time they played. The, the, you know, they stopped playing and they broke up after their father died. He was in his 40s and he died of a heart attack. And that was it. And they went on with their lives. Oh, to, to give you an idea what they were like, the, the oldest daughter, Helen, who played drums, when she was in her 20s, still living at home, she, she secretly got married in her 20s and wow. didn't tell her father about it for like three months. And when wow. she told her father that she'd gotten married, he got a shotgun and went after the guy. Wow. Yeah. So um, the few albums that survived sort of circulated out into the world. Uh, and Terry Adams of NRBQ got a hold of one of the albums 
and would play it for everybody. And it got to be a thing that certain musicians that were lucky enough, you know, and people would like, you know, dub, you know, cassettes of it and they got passed around. And it is, uh, I'm not sure if this is, if this has been verified or if it's true, but one of the things is one of the legends is that Frank Zappa listened to it and said, the Shags are better than the Beatles. Wow. You know, and, but the music is unlike anything you've ever heard. It's as if aliens had never heard music and read a Wikipedia entry about music and tried to recreate what they read on this Wikipedia entry. The drums and the percussion has nothing to do with and is not related to what's going on in the music whatsoever. Uh, the rhythms are weird. The melodies are weird. The lyrics are very, you know, crude and, you know, amateur, amateurish. Um, yeah. And it's just like most people just think, oh, my God, what is this? I've never heard anything like this. And many people hate it. But I but many people love it and love it. Not even really ironically, kind of love it for it. It's it's, you know, weird and wonderful in a way. And they wrote songs about um, one of the songs is who are parents parents are the ones who are always there for you you know parents are the ones who care for you uh, you know that kind of thing they wrote they wrote a song about their their pet cat called foot foot my dear pal is foot foot he never he always likes to roam my uh, dear pal is foot foot he never stays at home So the, the 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 foot foot song it starts with the drums bum ba da dum 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 ba da da ding 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 and the guitars come in cling 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 my dear friend is foot 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 he always likes to roam my dear friend is foot 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 he never stays at home. Uh, they wrote a song about Halloween. It's Halloween. It's Halloween. Um, and the the album was called Philosophy of the World. And the title track is all about how nobody is satisfied. Uh, the girls with long hair want short hair. The girls with short hair want long hair. Uh, the boys with motorcycles want sports car cars. The boys with sports car cars want motorcycles. You can never please anybody in this world. 
it's uh it's kind of very profound when you think about it how did you um, discover these discover well, them <laughs> well here's what happened is is um when when terry adams of nrbq discovered it and played it around he got the rights and they re-released the album okay and and so in 1980 rolling stone magazine named them the comeback group of the year and okay. named named philosophy of the world you know one of the one of the one of the great albums of the year uh and it's and, and it's what's considered outsider music so all, five years after the band breaks up they sort of became i wouldn't say they became famous but they developed a cult following okay and so i just imagine you know from their point of view this thing that they hated doing they hated playing music they hated being forced to do it and now Rolling Stone magazine names them the comeback group of the year and one of their albums, the great albums of the year. And now they're getting fan letters from Germany and all over Europe and from people in the United States wants to come and meet them in New Hampshire. They're like, what is going on? And, you know, uh, and so Austin's mother's prophecy kind of comes true that they become famous and they don't really understand why they become famous know what know what to think about you know their fame and don't really don't really know if people you know like their music or liking them ironically or making fun of them it's all very bizarre to them this would have been about i don't know when exactly 10 maybe 15 years ago someone wrote a musical about them it's called philosophy of the world and there was a production of it in los angeles and I'd never heard of the, the Shags, but a couple of my friends were in the musical. And I went and saw it. And the musical was so great, I saw it three times. And so, of course, I saw this musical. And so I sought out their, their music because the musical, they wrote songs for the musical the way you would normally musical. But it sure. incorporated their music a little bit. Like in the scenes where they're in the recording studio recording their music, it plays the the actors in the show playing the Wiggins sisters okay. play the music as close as they can to the way the Wiggins sisters did, which is very, very difficult. Uh, and so the, I sought out their music, got their album, loved it. And I loved their story. And then, um, then there was a, a production of the show in Chicago. And then there was an off-Broadway production of the, of the, of the show. And so you can, you can look up, you can find the the cast album of the off-Broadway production. It's called Philosophy of the World. Annie Golden played the mother, and Annie Golden is uh, probably best known for she was in the musical of Hair. Okay, there we go. Connection. Yes, she, she was one of a, one of the the main hippie chicks in Hair, and she played the mother uh, in this musical. So, if you're interested in this, I would I would track down the Shag's original Philosophy of the World album but also track down the cast album from the, from the musical. Uh, and you, like me, might become obsessed with the Shags. Oh, and Susan Orlean, the famous writer, Susan Orlean, she wrote um, uh, the book, uh, The Orchid Thief, that the movie adaptation is about, okay. you know, with Nicolas Cage. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean in the movie adaptation. Uh, Susan Orlean wrote an article in the New Yorker about the Shags. Okay. Kind of after they were sort of, you know, you know, rediscovered, and so you can read about them there if you if you uh, 
just do a Google search for the Shags and the New Yorker and Susan Orlean. Uh, this so, is fascinating. What what a weird, yeah. crazy yeah. story. Yeah, it's it's like the music's like is is like nothing you've ever heard before. You know? Wow. Yeah. I will check it out. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we get to the Mary question, any final thoughts? Uh, I don't. I, I think I've, I've talked about almost everything that I sort of <laughs> thought I was going to talk about. That is that is perfect. All right. So if you're a fan of Handsome Jack mm-hmm. and you're joining the podcast, I hope you've enjoyed him. He's been a great guest. But I end every podcast with the Mary question. Um, Jay Armstrong is a recently retired honors English teacher. But when he was teaching, he would take two days, his honors English class, and they would break apart the song Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. They would look at the lyrics, they would talk of the imagery that Bruce uses. And at the end of the two days, they would compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, among other poems. And Jay asked this class, does Mary get in the car? So... Handsome Jack, that is your question. Okay. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Oh, boy, do I have an answer to this. Um, Good. I say, I'll go on a very, very brief tangent. I will say um, I, for most of my adult life, uh, was not familiar with Bruce Springsteen's music. Um, he was one of those guys in college as I was learning about expanding my horizons and learned about, you know, Tom Waits and, you know, Frank Zappa and other musicians, uh, you know, I just didn't get into Springsteen. Right. And so some years back, I thought, I want to learn about Springsteen. So I bought like seven or eight of his albums and started listening to him. And the one that really gripped me and captured me was Born to Run. Yeah. And I think Born to Run is a masterpiece. And I have listened to that album over and over and over again. And every once in a while, when I feel in the mood to listen to some Springsteen, I thought, you know what? I'll listen to, you know, some of his other albums. And I'll try some of the other albums. And just none of them have clicked for me the way Born the run has clicked which I, I i love and thunder road is from that album yes. so and 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 uh uh does she does she get in the car or does she not and the reference to, to robert frost and the road not taken you know everybody everybody misunderstands that poem yes you, you realize you realize that don't you please yeah. expand well you know <laughs> you know that I'll, I'll i'll let other people look into that but everybody okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, subtle poem. It doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means, you know, but, uh, maybe, maybe if you want to, I'll, I'll talk about it further on the next podcast. Okay. Sounds good. But the poem, the poem is most people misinterpret that poem, but anyway, so here's the way I I have several ways of answering that question and they all lead to the same answer. Suppose you were friends with Bruce Springsteen. Okay. Bruce came to you. And he said, hey, I wrote a song that I'm uh, pretty happy with. And he said, oh, really, what's it about? And he goes, well, it's about, it's about this girl, Mary, that I really loved. And it's about the time I thought, this is it. I'm going to win her over. So I went to her house, and I just turned on the charm, and I just went full out with my seduction. I said, just run away with me. Let's, let, let's get out of this town. Let's hop in my car and go, and let's build our life together. Just come in and let's go. Wow, what and so the song's autobiographical? Yeah. So 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 what happened when you did that? Well, she rejected me and I, I had to walk away with, with my tail between my legs. Oh, oh, so what's the song called? Thunder Road. Not 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 Lonely Road? No, Thunder Road. Not 
not heartbreak road no thunder road oh thunder as in it's it's stormy and and raining in your heart no thunder road like the the power chords of, of my guitar. I've got a guitar that I learned to make talk. What are you working on a ventriloquism routine? <laughs> Hello, Mr. Springs. How are you? Yes. Uh, no, no, Thunder Road, like the, the, the power chords and, the, and the, the big engine in my car, Thunder Road. Oh. oh, oh, okay. So the answer is right there in the song. She gets in that car because the first part of the song is him, you know, being his own salesman and making the case and saying, you know, get my car, come with me, let's let's build a life. I mean, you can criticize his approach, you know, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's not, you know, uh, the most effective thing to say to a woman when you're when you're trying to seduce her. Although you could argue that that is negging, which people will tell you negging is, is, uh, you know, can be very effective. Right. But that song is him making the case. And so he lays it on the line and says, you know, run away with me. And then when the lyrics start and the instrumental instrumental starts, that's the answer. That's what's happens. You listen to that. She is in that car. They are on that road. There's no two ways about it. It is not ambiguous in any way. Because this song could be one of three things. It can be an ambiguous thing, like uh, the end of uh, Chaplin's City Lights. Right. If you know City Lights, which I think is Chaplin's best film, there's this woman uh, who is blind, who through a series of uh, misunderstandings, thinks he's rich, thinks he's a millionaire. And then she has an operation and she regains her sight and she sees him for the first time. And she realizes this man that she thought was a millionaire is not a millionaire. He's a tramp, you know, he's a bum. And he looks at her and you're like, oh my God, what is she going to do? Is she going to, you know, embrace him? Or is she going to slap him in the face for, you know, lying to her all, all this time? What is she going to do? What is she going to do? And then the movie ends and you don't know how she's going to react. The song could be that, or it could be the song of this is the time that, you know, uh, this is so the, the time where, you know, the, the big love affair started. This is where it all began. Or it could be a song about the one who got away. Right. And it's not an ambiguous. Did she or, did, did she or didn't she like uh, like 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 the middle of um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light? What's it going to be, boy? Yes or no. Yes or no. What's yeah. going to be, boy? I got to know. I got to know. I got to know right now. What's going to be, boy? It's not that. It's not a the one that got away song. It's this is where it all began. Now, probably, you know, probably all fell apart, but this is the answer is in the music. She absolutely gets in that car and drives away. I love it. That is a great answer. I appreciate that. That's a great answer, Jack. Very nice. So, so, so now I have to know about. Um, uh, the people that answer is, is it like 50, 50, or do most of the answers lean one way or the other? No, it is 60%. Yes. She gets in the car. 40% mm -hmm. say no. Yeah. Uh, similar because, uh, the, um, she's afraid to make that choice. Mm -hmm. She, you know, and so that's why she doesn't get in. Um, there are people that tell the story that later, 
she does get in there. Um, I like a couple of answers. Absolutely. She gets in the car and when uh, racing in the street, when she talks about, she sits at her daddy's porch, that's mm-hmm. the porch that she was dancing on. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the one that's closest to your answer mm-hmm. is the guy said, it depends if it's the E street band playing it. Mm-hmm. She absolutely gets in the car because it's that triumphant musical end. If yeah. it's Bruce playing solo just on the guitar and he ends with a na, 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 that's the hero driving away because she didn't get in the car. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah. I love yeah. it. Thank you. Great. Jack, this was a blast. I hope you had fun. Thank you so oh, much. Right. Uh, yeah. Continued success. I appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, I may reach out to you in a couple of weeks and go, okay, I've, I've done a deep dive on the shags. Now we need to talk. Okay, <laughs> so, great, great. Thank you. Well, well, I had, I, you know, I had to preach about the shags and if I could just, you know, make one more convert, you know, I love uh, it. That is great. Very nice. All right. Listeners, you stay safe. Go get vaccinated. Go get boosted. Uh, Let's all be kind to each other because that's how we're going to get through this. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. This podcast would not be possible without my wonderful group of patrons. I want to send a special thanks to John Munson, Mary Thomas, Terry Smith, Dale Hosek, Andrew Goddard, Stephen Malio, Alex Samada, Anna Lynn, Chris Bloom, Holly Mack, and Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast. Your support means the world to me, and you are forever in my heart. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, that listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. Why even Dracula will be there? It's time for games, it's time for fun Not for just one, but for everyone The jack-o'-lanterns have all lit up All the dummies are made of stuff By the smoking you will see It's this time of year again It's Halloween, it's Halloween It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.